I really appreciate the time of worship this morning. It is a blessing indeed, Mike Griffin, to work with you again. We used to do this together all the time. And it's such a blessing to be with him again after this many years. He said, I've had enough of you. I'm going to Georgia. I love this dear man like a son. And pianist Carrie, I have appreciated your playing. Where'd she go? Dear lady, your ministry by the keyboard has blessed me. I want you to know that. It is so good. You know, uh, you can play the notes or you play the music. And you play the music and not the notes. And I've been blessed by that. We started this morning by looking at the fact that God is a person, a creator who is a loving father, who is affected by our behavior. And when he looked upon the sin of man, In Genesis chapter 6, he was grieved to his heart. When Jesus looked over Jerusalem, he sobbed and wailed out loud because he came to his own and his own received him not. He wasn't hurt and sob and cry because it hurt him. It hurt him because of his love. And he came to redeem them. It's always because of us. Not because he has hurt feelings that he's been rejected. But because he knows if we reject him. There is no other way of salvation. We saw that the Holy Spirit who is a person is grieved over our sin. If I tolerate sin in my life, excuse sin in my life, overlook sin in my life, that grieves the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a power. He's not an it. He's not a force. He's a person, a real person, who's exactly like the Lord Jesus. When Jesus said, I will send you another comforter, he used the Greek word that means another of the same kind. There's another Greek word, another of a different kind, but he chose the word another of the same kind. In other words, he's saying this new comforter or this other comforter that's coming to every believer to dwell inside and be with them always. This comforter is just like me. In other words, wherever I go, I have the Lord Jesus Christ living inside me because his spirit is is within me. He has made my body and your body, if you're a child of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is not figurative. This is not mythical. This is reality. The Holy Spirit has actually taken up residence within every child of God. Paul said, if I have not the Spirit, he who has not the Spirit of Christ is none of his. 
And so living in each of us who are God's children is the almighty spirit of God, the one who actually raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And the Holy Spirit is grieved over our sin for two reasons. Number one, because the one he came to glorify is not being glorified because of sin in our lives. The Holy Spirit was sent to testify and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in and through the believer, in and through the body of Christ. But when he is not able to glorify the Lord Jesus through that life because of sin, he is grieved. Secondly, he's grieved because he who is exactly like the Father, exactly like the Son, wants the very best for my life. And he knows that if I'm tolerating sin, excusing sin, overlooking sin, treating sin casually and lightly and carelessly, he knows that I am missing out on the fullness of God's Spirit, the fullness of love and the fullness of joy and the fullness of peace. I am living short of what God wants to give to me. And so the person of the Holy Spirit is grieved on that account. Grieve not the Spirit. And so we've seen that God is a living person. who is affected by our behavior, either with grief or with delight and pleasure. And I pray often for my own life. Father, I want to be a pleasure to your heart. I want to be a delight to you with all of my life. I do not want to grieve you. I do not want to quench you in any way. I want to adore you and be pleasure to your heart. And that becomes very practical. And that's why it's been so significant to me that the Lord Jesus Christ for 30 years lived an obscure, ordinary life. Nobody but his mother knew who he was. His own brothers and sisters didn't understand it. For 30 years, an ordinary, obscure life as a carpenter in Nazareth. He was known as the carpenter of Nazareth. Calloused hands. Dirty fingernails. But the Son of God. He had not preached a sermon. He had not cast out a demon. He had not healed the first sick person. And yet at his baptism, the Father said, You are my beloved Son. And whom I'm well pleased. You may feel like I'll never preach a sermon. I'm not a great Sunday school teacher. I can't do this. I can't do that. Think about the Lord Jesus. For 30 years, he didn't do any ministry. Publicly. But he ministered to his mother. Whom scholars believe was a widow. He helped raise those brothers and sisters. He would never have his own family. He didn't begin ministry till the Father said, now's the time.
Would you look in your Bible at Exodus chapter 34? And I want to say to you as we turn to this passage that it is a foundational passage for all the rest of the Word of God. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 5, going through verse 8. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Stood with Moses. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. This passage of Scripture answers four questions for us. The significance of this passage is this is God's autobiography. This is God saying, this is who I am. This is the kind of God I am. The first question this passage answers is, who is God? Who is God? This first statement I'm going to give to you, we're going to look at in more detail tomorrow night. I want to tell you something. When I saw this, I was struck to the core of my being. He is an humble God who descends to where we are. I've shared this with others. They've never thought about the fact that God, Almighty God, is a humble God. But He is. And as we explore the scriptures, you're going to see it in his word. So the first thing was he descended. The second thing we see is that he is an invisible God who reveals himself. In John chapter 1 verse 14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. He's a God who reveals himself. I cannot know Jared Scott except as he reveals himself. He came by last night and we spent some time together and we prayed together and, 
in just that little bit of time, he revealed some things about himself, and I got to know him better. And every, every bit more I get to know Jared Scott, I appreciate him more. We can't know God except that He reveals Himself. The marvelous thing is that God the Creator delights to reveal Himself to us as mere human beings. In John 14, 21, the Lord Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, He is the one that loves me. And my Father and I will love Him and I will disclose myself to Him. That's self-revelation. To those obedient children, those Christians, those followers, those believers who walk sincerely in obedience, the Lord Jesus comes and reveals Himself. David wrote that He came in the night when Jacob wrestled with the angel. Guess who it was? God is a God who is invisible, but He reveals Himself, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Both in the Old Testament, it was pre-incarnate revelation of the Lord Jesus. After the resurrection, it's the Lord Jesus revealing Himself. And Christian history is full of stories by men who walked with God, and they were invaded by the very presence of Christ Revealed, not visible to the eye, but this overwhelming sense, this spiritual sense. The Lord Jesus is here. One old timer of yesteryear in the 1800s said, Lord, stay your hand or I perish. God's presence was so real. So this invisible God is a God who reveals Himself. He's a person with a name. It says the Lord descended. That word is Yahweh. When Moses said, Who shall I say sent me? God revealed Himself as Yahweh. That was his name. There was a season in the Hebrew history when they would not pronounce the name of God. But before that, they did pronounce the name. David pronounced the name of God. God says, this is my name. He's a person with a name. Listen, that word Yahweh is used 6,823 times in the Old Testament. If I were to say Mike Griffin, there's one person in here who's going to respond to Mike Griffin. That name. God has a name. He's a person with a name. He is Almighty God. Sovereign Lord. When he says, the Lord, the Lord, that's the name of God. And then it says, a God, merciful and gracious. That's the Hebrew word El. That has to do with sovereignty. 
He's sovereign Lord. He's creator. He's owner of all there is. He sustains all there is. He is ruler of all there is. Psalm 115 verse 3 says He sits on His throne and does as He pleases. There is nothing in the universe, spiritual or physical, that God does not have authority over. He created every single thing. He owns it all and He controls it all. He has authority over it all. The devil doesn't even come close to being second in power. So who is God? He's Yahweh, the Lord, who reveals himself. And he came down to Moses. And when it says he descended in a cloud, the cloud indicates there's always a mystery about him. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the things revealed belong to us. The hidden things belong to God. He doesn't tell us all things. There are blanks in the scripture. God did not give us all revelation. He gave us the revelation we know, need to know in order to know him and walk with him. But he did not explain everything that we need to, that we would like to know. We come to the second question. Who is God? What is God like? What is God like? When I was in retreat ministry in Titusville, Florida, and Mike Griffin was there at the same time, we had youth retreats as well as pastor's retreats and adult retreats, and all kinds of retreats. But during the summertime, we would have youth retreats week after week after week. And churches came from all over the country to attend these youth retreats. And I was doing a message with them. We had different ones on the staff speak. And I was doing a message with them one day, and I said, what do you think God's going to want you to do if you give your whole life to him? And they answered, be a missionary. And I said, and do what? And they said, go be a missionary. Where? Africa. (laughs) And the girl said, and be single. That happened in retreat after retreat. You say they did not understand who God is and what he's like. And I was able to share with them If you abandon your life to him to do anything he wants you to do, and he does want you to go to some foreign country, like why? To be a missionary. You wouldn't want to do anything else because, you see, he works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. You wouldn't want to be anyplace else. He's a God of love. And if you abandon your life to him, he can do an inside job and give you such desire in your heart that that's what you want to do above all else and nothing else will satisfy you. So what is God like? Notice what he says. If you go back to your Bible with me, the Lord, the Lord, that's the name of God, a God that's El, merciful and gracious. 
the very first thing God says about himself is, I am merciful. And I am gracious. You could also put the word compassionate there. He's gracious. He's compassionate. Or merciful. He's compassionate. And he's gracious. And when you watch the Lord Jesus walk through the pages of the Gospels, what you see, he's always gracious. He's always merciful. So the very first thing God says about himself draws us. He's merciful. He's gracious. And then it says he abounds in steadfast love. Think of it this way. He's overflowing infinitely overflowing in steadfast love. That word steadfast love there in the English Standard Version, you're in New American Standard, I think it uses the word loving kindness. But that word is a wonderful Hebrew word. You see it has a particular meaning. It means loyal. It means persistent. It means steady. It means unchanging. It's a very strong word in the Hebrew. And so God abounds. He overflows infinitely with steadfast love that is steady, persistent, unchanging love for his people. Leon Morris was a New Testament scholar and he wrote a book on, on the matter of love. And this is what he said. It is a love that not all man's weakness, sinfulness, and stubbornness can destroy. If God has set his love upon you and you are his child, he loves you with all that he is. You might say God loves you with his whole heart. But what does that mean? He loves you infinitely. He loves you eternally. He loves you unchangeably. You can do nothing to add to that love. And you can do nothing to subtract from that love. He loves you. Listen, it has nothing to do with you. It's not because he looked down into your life and saw, hmm, well, there's some spark there that makes me love them. It's not because he saw something worth anything in you to be loved. This is phenomenal. And I've said to people through the years, if you're going to walk with God, there's two things you've got to know. Number one, you've got to know in your heart of hearts, the deepest part of your soul, God loves me. It has nothing to do with me and my behavior. He just loves me. And the second thing you need to know is with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
I love God. When those two things are settled, you can walk in the fullness of love and joy and peace. And so God's love is not contingent upon your behavior or your worth. God is love. And for reasons we cannot understand and ever explain, for whatever reason, God has set his love upon you. It is steadfast, it is infinite, and it will never, ever change. And that's why Paul said at the end of Romans, the 8th chapter, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he abounds in steadfast love for you, Eternally. And we read 117 times in the Old Testament that Yahweh shows steadfast love. This is why Romans 5, 8 says, God proves his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Then it says in verse 6, he abounds in faithfulness. He overflows in steadfast love. He abounds in faithfulness. This strengthens the meaning of steadfast love. His faithfulness is fixed. It's determined. It's stubborn. Listen, dear ones. If you go through the New Testament and look up the word about God being faithful, if I remember right, I did this study more than 30 years ago, but I think it's about nine times the word of God says he's faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful. Very significant places. He's faithful. In Christ, every promise is yes and amen. His faithfulness is fixed, it's determined, it's stubborn, it's steadfast, it's loyal. He can be no other way. When I was in the retreat ministry down in Florida where Mike Griffin was, I had a little secretary, Libby Hoyle, you remember her? And Libby Hoyle was just a little woman. She was about as tall as my wife. And we'd have a retreat, and the Spirit of God would just descend on some of these retreats. They would just be powerful movies of God's Spirit. And Libby would come up to me and say, Well, Brother Jerry, God was faithful. And I'd say, Libby, can he be any other way? And it would frustrate her. Oh, God can be no other way than faithful. We need to know that. And so when God speaks about himself, he says, I am Yahweh, I am merciful, I am gracious, I overflow infinitely with steadfast love, and I overflow infinitely with faithfulness. This is what God is like. 
I want to give you about four scriptures you can look up later. I don't want to take the time tonight. But I want to give you four scriptures that you can look up later. Psalms chapter 25, verse 10. Read these before you go to sleep tonight. Psalm 25, verse 10. Psalm 26, verse 3. Psalm 86, verse 11 through 16. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 6. And there are others, but I just give these four. Psalm 25, verse 10. Psalm 26, verse 3. Psalm 86, verse 11 through 16. And Proverbs 16, verse 6. Now, what's the significance of those scriptures? I want you to hear me well. God said, this is who I am. And this is what I'm like. And you read through the Psalms again and again and again. David and the other psalmist appealed to God on that basis of who he said he was and what he was like. Proverbs, even in the prophets, they keep going back to what God said about himself. They keep referring to it. And you'll be surprised as you go through the Psalms and as you go through the prophets, how often it comes up. He's steadfast in love and faithfulness, or loving kindness and faithfulness. You see, this is the foundation. How is it that the Lord Jesus could be in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and one of those sudden storms comes up because the wind comes over the hills down to that bowl, and the sudden storm came up, and the boat was being swamped, and he was asleep on the cushion in the back of the boat, and the disciples were afraid. How is it he could sleep in the middle of a storm like that? Because the Lord Jesus knew this scripture. God abounds in steadfast love to me and to us. God abounds in faithfulness to me and to us. This boat cannot sink and will not sink because God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He is watching over me every moment. He understood it in his heart. How is it that Paul could sing and praise God in the middle of the night in the prison bound in stocks? Feet spread apart like this, as far as they could put it, bound in stocks, having been beaten with rods, and yet they praise God because he understood this wonderful, wonderful Yahweh, who was the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, dear ones, we need to know that not just because it's in the Bible. We need to know it because the Holy Spirit has written it a second time in our hearts and souls by the finger of God. It is foundational. I've been a Baptist for years and years and years. I Grew up in a Baptist church and went to two of our Baptist seminaries and a Baptist university. I want to tell you something. In all those years, I never heard anybody teach on this, that this is the foundational truth 
on which everything else in the Scripture is built about God Himself. I have never been in a prayer meeting where anybody stood and prayed and said, God, you're a God of mercy and a God of grace and you abound in steadfast love and faithfulness and because of who you said you are, we cry out to you, Lord God, would you be merciful to us? Would you send revival into our midst? God delights when we appeal to Him on the basis of who He says He is and what He said He will do. It makes a difference to go and meet with Him alone and know that because He's this kind of God, He tore the veil of the temple in two from top to bottom because He wants me near Him And he comes and he says, my child, my child, I'm your father. I abound and overflow with mercy and grace and steadfast love and faithfulness. Come, pour your heart out and let me embrace you with who I am and what I am. How does God behave? Who is He? What is He like? How does He behave? He tells us right up front, folks, He doesn't put it in fine print at the bottom of the contract. He lets us know right up front how He behaves. And He will not vary from this one iota. There is no shadow of turning with God He says, I, the Lord, change not. He never wakes up in a bad mood. He's always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. How does he behave? If you look with me at verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. There is that phrase again. He keeps steadfast love for thousands, whether they be in Kenya whether they be in Mexico, whether they be in Russia or Siberia. He keeps steadfast love. Whether they be in the Middle East, he keeps steadfast love for thousands. Parentheses. Are you numbered among those thousands or are you outside that number? He's talking about his children. So he keeps steadfast love. Nothing, absolutely nothing, changes that. In the Corinthian church, for the sake of their salvation, he took some early because they were shaming his name. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Let me tell you what those three different words mean. First, iniquity. It means to miss the mark or missing the mark. It's the same kind of word that's found in the Greek in the New Testament. One of the words for sin in the Greek New Testament is to miss the mark. It matters not if I have a target over there and I have a rifle and I take a shot. It matters not if I miss it by an inch or miss it by a foot. I've missed the mark. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the Greek word for sin. I've missed the mark. I have not been like Jesus. 
in so many ways. I have sinned. I've broken His law. I've sinned against Him. I've sinned against others. I have missed the mark. I have not been the full expression of God's glory. I have fallen short of shining forth with God's glory. I've missed the mark. And so that word, iniquity, means to miss the mark. Secondly, the word transgression is rebellion. It's revolt against the standard. Transgression is to cross the line. And so I have crossed the line. God has said you shall not do this. I've crossed the line and disobeyed. And then the word Sin is deviation from or twisting of the standard. It sometimes refers to habitual sin. You've lost your temper. You've repented. You've asked forgiveness from God. You've asked forgiveness from others. And then a few weeks later, something happens and the fuse goes off and you lose your temper again. You wonder, how in the world can I ever ask God to forgive me again? Some of you have gotten so sick of asking God to forgive you for certain sins. You keep going back again and again and again. The wonderful good news is God is gracious and merciful. He forgives transgression. He forgives iniquity. And He forgives sin that's been repeated. There's only one condition, and that is you're willing to forsake it. You're willing to get rid of it. You want to put it to death. But because of his character, of what he's like, he forgives all kinds of sin. There is nothing in your life that he cannot forgive. Nothing. Regardless of how many times you've done it, he can still forgive you because that's the kind of God that he is. But he doesn't clear the guilty, verse 7. He doesn't clear the guilty. He's a just God. The unrepentant ones, he doesn't clear. For those who are not his children... If they die, they go to hell. He doesn't clear their guilt. If it's a child of God, he brings chastisement, discipline, that it might be dealt with and put away. And sometimes the discipline can be very severe. But he does not clear the guilty who will not repent. And the rebellious and unrepentant ones will cause sinful effects in their children and grandchildren. As a pastor, I've seen this. Pastor, I'm sure you've seen this. Here's a father who lives in sin. It has damaging effects upon the children and can eventually have damaging effects upon the grandchildren. You see, God is love. But equally, God is just. Now that brings us to the fourth and final question. How 
should you respond? How should I respond? How should a church respond to this kind of gracious, merciful, loving God who reveals himself in lowliness? Verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. When Moses saw God revealed, he responded the only way possible. He worshipped. He bowed low in humility before this glorious God. He worshipped the Yahweh revealed. And then in verse 9, he pled for God's stiff-necked people with intercessory prayer. You see, when your heart has had a revelation of who God is, the natural response is to worship. And as your own soul is revived by God's revelation and your response of worship, you become concerned about brothers and sisters. You become concerned about the church. You become concerned that God's not getting the glory that he deserves from his people. And it grieves you. You see, when you're in a position of worship and intimacy with God, you began to take into your heart what concerns the heart of God. Have you ever noticed in what we call the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer? Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. You see, when you are in the right position of knowing who God really is and what he's really like, and you respond with a worshiping heart, the Holy Spirit works in you the desire to want what honors God before you want what meets your need. What honors God? His name be hallowed. What honors God? His kingdom to come. What honors God? His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you see, that doesn't happen apart from our praying. Jesus taught us to pray that. It doesn't happen apart from our praying. God has bound himself to our praying. So often we're not on praying ground. All we want to pray about are our little needs. 
but not what's in the heart of God. Your needs are in the heart of God, but His first desire is about His name being revered, His kingdom coming, and His will being done. Then we can pray, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not to temptation. And so Moses bowed his head and he worshipped. And the very next thing after this revelation and responsive worship, he began to be troubled and burdened for his people and he began to pray for this stiff-necked people that God would be gracious with them. It seems to be few people who care more about the heart of God than their own needs. And yet, what Jesus taught us is pray for the heart of God's desires before your own. For Moses, those verses were not just a teaching. For Moses, it was a heart revelation. It was a divine encounter with the living God. And dear ones, we need the same thing. We need the Lord to come into our midst so that much beyond just having teaching, we encounter Him. The pastor shared this morning out of Luke 24 about the two on the road to Emmaus. And their eyes were opened and they saw who Jesus was. They had a divine encounter. It wasn't just teaching. It was a divine encounter. Paul prayed in Ephesians, the first chapter, I pray that the eyes of your heart be enlightened. That's our great need. We need God to reveal himself so that in our hearts, along with teaching, we encounter his presence and we cannot remain the same. This is your God, merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in faithfulness, forgiving sin, but just and not giving in to the guilty.
Let's pray.